Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. It's just Michelle Witte today. We're back. John's going to be back tomorrow. Uh, but as usual, we have a very big show. Uh, and I have to say, anytime you come back from a break, it feels weird to like leapfrog over a big period of news, right? And there's this temptation to want to go back and say, like, well, I want to talk about what happened last Tuesday or whatever. It looked like a it looked like a very interesting uh, week of news, at least from you know being way up on a mountain, half paying attention for the past week. Uh, but there's a bunch of stuff happening now, so I don't get to indulge myself and just have our guests uh, walk me through <laughs> the events of the past week. Uh, we have a lot of stuff happening over the weekend and happening today to talk about. We are, of course, going to talk about the appointment of a special master to review documents taken from Mar-a-Lago last month. This was a Trump request that got kind of laughed at uh, by media, kind of laughed at. And then they would sort of say, like, well, maybe the attorney client privilege thing, maybe that's maybe that's going to happen. But a judge has now decided that. According to her, this is appropriate, and she has given the special master a pretty broad review power. So we will talk about that and what it means uh, in the second hour of the show. We are going to talk about Liz Truss taking power in the UK. Uh, you know, probably more importantly, uh, we'll talk about what on earth her government has planned to help Brits handle some of these outrageous energy bills that they are being handed. And uh, from what I can see, not a lot of specifics, uh, right? She's sort of talking about uh, cutting taxes, deregulation, not sure how that's going uh, to help her with, you know, what is going to inevitably have to be some government intervention to help people pay for these bills. We are going to talk about the results in Chile of the country's vote on a new constitution. Uh, that proposed document was pretty solidly rejected after a two-year process to draft it and present it to the public. So we will ask why that happened and what's going to be coming next. We are going to talk about OPEC's decision to take back that little 100,000-barrel production bump that it agreed to last month. OPEC gave a bunch of uh, economic justifications in uh, revealing its decision. We are going to ask if, you know, in reality, this is mostly just politics. We are going to talk about the possibility of a price cap on Russian oil and what that would mean. We will ask about this meeting on the Biological Weapons Convention that Russia has requested and which uh, got underway properly yesterday. Uh, we'll see what they're concerned about. This is not a meeting that's getting a lot of attention. We are going to talk about a an interesting new iteration of this idea of the the horse, the political horseshoe, right? This red-brown alliance. And whether we are actually now seeing something that the left gets accused of very often, right? This is a this is an idea that I think is generally trotted out to try to to smear and dismiss the left. Uh, but both in the United States and in Europe, you do have people saying we we are getting criticism of the policies of the center from both sides. And maybe, maybe in this iteration, uh, that uh, temporary alliance is not such a bad thing. We are going to talk about the results of Joe Biden's recent speeches, and uh, we will take a few minutes to check in on some of some of the many environmental environmental crises uh, underway right now. We will talk a little bit about what's been happening in Pakistan. 
and also this grid emergency that California began warning about yesterday. Uh, that's just two, because there are so many underway right now, we couldn't cover them all. Uh, so maybe we'll we'll get into some more of these stories later in the week. Uh, before we get to our guests and the rest of the show, though, there are a couple of headlines to get to. Uh, big shock. Months after reports by CNN, The New York Times, and others that found that Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akla was shot to death by Israeli soldiers, the Israeli Defense Forces have come out and said, well, look, we can't possibly know who it was, but there is a high possibility that Ms. Abu Akla was accidentally hit by IDF gunfire fired towards suspects identified as armed Palestinian gunmen during an exchange of fire. So the IDF here is sticking to its story that their soldiers were returning fire and didn't know they were aiming at journalists. This is despite both The New York Times and CNN, who are, by the way, not notable critics of Israeli defense operations, uh, despite two reports by by these outlets and others finding that there were no armed Palestinians near Abu Akla when she was shot. And CNN even found a bunch of evidence that Akla might have been intentionally targeted. The IDF's report itself was also contradictory, right? It said in its review that IDF soldiers only aimed fire at those who were identified as armed terrorists during the incident. As such, there is no suspicion that a bullet was fired deliberately at anyone identified as a civilian and in particular at anyone identified as a journalist. So this is from their report. CNN reported on the IDF's findings, and in their report on it, they quote a senior IDF official as saying that Abu Akla's back probably being turned to the soldiers was a contributing factor in what the IDF you know, wants to present as an accident. But of course, Abu Akla was wearing a protective vest labeled press on the front and the back when she was shot in the head. Uh, the U.S., of course, uh, should have uh, an interest in this case because Shireen Abu Akla was an American citizen. And the State Department throughout this process has been saying it's very important that we don't shoot civilians and there should be accountability in very vague terms. And so spokesperson Ned Price came out and said <laughs> very forcefully we underscore the importance of accountability, such as policies and procedures to prevent similar incidents in the future. So no, absolutely nothing to say. And of course, the IDF says there's going to be no investigation because nothing criminal happened. So this is the kind of accountability you get if you are a Palestinian-American journalist who's shot in the head by Israeli Defense Forces, not near any Palestinian mini uh, militants, not near any uh, Palestinian fire. In another story that we didn't get to cover in the past week, and of course, speaking of uh, environmental catastrophes, there might be some light at the end of the tunnel for residents of Jackson, Mississippi, who'd been without water after flooding knocked out their city's treatment plant. As of yesterday, there's water pressure in the city again. The tanks are full. The governor says Jackson residents can now flush their toilets and be confident that water will come out of taps again. Again, we call ourselves the richest country in the world. 
Um, but because this was not a singular catastrophe, but a sort of slowly snowballing disaster with many points of weakness and crisis, Jackson, Mississippi is still going to be dealing with boil water advisories and probably intermittent outages until a long-term solution is reached. And the governor is already saying that that long-term solution might be privatizing the city's water. Uh, he said he's open to anything, including that idea. The mayor of Jackson opposes this. Uh, and of course, you know, it was good to see the, the crisis in this city get some attention over the past week. But U.S. media does not do a very good job of covering slow building crises like these. So we will have to watch and see. Uh, Jackson, Mississippi says students are going back to in-person classes uh, today as the, the taps will run water and the toilets can be flushed. This is the end, it seems, of the latest acute phase of this crisis, but this is obviously not the end of uh, the water problems in that city or in lots of cities uh, around the country, where, again, uh, I don't think privatization is going to be the, the solution here. And another story uh, that I had a personal interest in, uh, I don't know if you remember when the baby from the cover of Nirvana's Nevermind album uh, decided it was going to sue the band because he decided, this grown-up baby, Spencer Eldon, that the album constituted child pornography. Eldon was photographed with the permission of his parents, who were there in the water taking the pictures with him, when he was four months old. Uh, the album came out in 1991, so the picture was taken around then, and his parents got 200 bucks for it. Uh, on Friday, a judge dismissed the lawsuit he brought, uh, basically saying that Eldon had waited too long to file the complaint. He, he'd known about the album. He says he's known, known about the album for 10 years, but of course he's known about the album for his entire life, right? Also, Spencer Eldon had recreated the picture, clothed, for several different anniversaries of the album. His story is that he became increasingly uncomfortable with it and finally decided it was pornography. This is not a conclusion that anyone else seems to have come to over the past 30 years. It also doesn't seem like Eldon took the case very seriously uh, because his lawyers had already missed a deadline to respond to Nirvana's first motion to dismiss months ago. And the judge gave them another opportunity to uh, come back and address what the Nirvana team had brought up. Now it seems like this case is good and done. I think that's good. It seemed like a very, very silly lawsuit. Uh, another piece of news just actually breaking before uh, I walked into the studio. Uh, last week, one of the stories that uh, made some headlines was the longest sentence so far issued for participants in the January 6th riot. Uh, a retired cop got 10 years. He was accused of uh, beating another cop who was on duty with a flagpole. Today, and this comes from an announcement uh, by the group Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, or CREW. Today, a New Mexico judge ordered Otero County Commissioner Coy Griffin to be removed from office. Uh, the judge ruled that the attack on the Capitol was an insurrection and that Griffin's participation in it should disqualify him from holding office under the 14th Amendment. So crew is very excited about this. They say the decision marks the first time since 1869 that a court has disqualified a public official under Section 3 of this amendment, and also the first time that a court has ruled that the events of January 6th constituted an insurrection. Uh, 
uh, from the crew press release, we also have uh, news that an eyewitness to Griffin's behavior testified that he took on a leadership position within the mob at the Capitol. Uh, there were videos of his speeches en route for the Stop the Steal rally uh, that they said demonstrated his willingness to stop by any means necessary a Biden presidency. Uh, so could mark a, a shift in uh, the way some of the participation in this ride is being treated. I think with that, we'll take a break and, and get to the rest of the show, talk a little bit more about OPEC uh, energy and Europe and some of these other topics. So we're going to take a quick break here. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte, and we are starting off with energy politics and energy politics. We have protests in Europe. We've got OPEC making production changes. We are also awaiting the report by IAEA inspectors on their visit to the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. We've got Russia's requested meeting on alleged violations of the Biological Weapons Convention. We've got accusations that the U.S. is abusing its power as a host country for NATO. There is a lot to get into. And joining me for it is Mark Sloboda. He's an international affairs and security analyst. Thanks for being here, Mark. Michelle, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Political Misfits. Let's start with some of these protests in Europe over the weekend. Uh, there was a very big demonstration in Prague, uh, tens of thousands of people, according to reports, uh, and smaller ones elsewhere in France and Germany. Uh, the Prague protest was, as I understand it, driven by demands for state help with energy bills, as uh, the Czech Republic has a cost of living crisis. But prominent among the crowd and in the speakers were calls for the country to leave NATO, to leave the EU. You to deal directly with Russia for energy, uh, to sort of change its its geopolitical strategy. And so I wonder, you know, if you think this is only the beginning of these kinds of protests. And I also wonder how long they will remain, you know, largely or ostensibly about the desire for government support to deal with the energy crisis uh, and when we should expect to see them become more overtly political, right, and demand a new demand a, a response to the root causes of this crisis, I guess. Yeah, of course, this is just the beginning. Um, and the conditions for uh, the citizens of the EU, uh, both in terms of their energy bills, uh, inflation, um, and, uh, you know, uh, general scarcity are going to increase, right? This is uh, the beginning of September. There's a long winter ahead, and um, the Russian energy um, uh, gas company, uh, Gazprom, was actually basically creating uh, well-crafted trolling videos mm -hmm. promising a long winter ahead as they showed the gas uh, slowly um, uh, no longer being transmitted uh, to Europe. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, I mean— what was the goal of the existential economic war of sanctions 
that began this, right? Mm-hmm. It was to make the Russian people suffer so much that they rise up to overthrow their government to demand a change in policy. Mm-hmm. Well, this is the exact same logic behind Russia's throttling of gas uh, and energy to Europe uh, through uh, technical excuses. And well, I mean, let's be fair. I mean, Europe was already promising themselves that they would do without Russian gas Mm -hmm. and oil. So Russia's kind of just helping them along. But Russia's goal is to make uh, the citizens of the EU suffer as much as the political elite in the EU wanted to make the Russian people suffer so that they rise up and overthrow their political Mm. elites. And right now it's about help. Uh, In a few months time, when the cold really starts to hit um, and energy is rationed and there are rolling blackouts in many European countries and people are unable to pay their energy bills and their credit cards are maxed out, then there will be calls for, you know, the 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 governments to step down. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because it feels like I mean, I agree. And it feels like something of a race. Right. And I, I was going to ask you later, but I'll but I'll mention it now. You know, uh, yes, the sanctions war, the, the sanctions that the West imposed on Russia were absolutely intended to to cause this kind of suffering and, and discontent. And they don't seem to have done that in the short term. Uh, And I think questions remain as to how successful they'll be in the long term. I've seen some analysis that suggests, you know, it'll take a year or, you know, it'll take a few months. But next year, the following year, some of these uh, shortages that Russia is going to experience from uh, supplies that it can't produce at home are going to really start to bite. And I wanted to ask what what you think about uh, the sort of longer term economic prospects for Russia under the conditions of, you know, yeah, sort of race to get your citizens to uh, to demand regime change. Uh, I'm basing this on there was a new report for the Russian government that Bloomberg says it's gotten its hands on uh, that basically says it, it, the impact of sanctions immediately wasn't too bad. But next year and the year after, uh, Russia is really going to start to suffer. The economy will really contract. And so I wonder, you know, I, I wonder what you think Russia is preparing to do about this to avert this long term consequence. And if this is a sort of race, you know, how, how much time do they have? Yeah, I, I saw the report that you're mentioning. I haven't seen the report. I don't know who wrote it. There's nothing that I've seen about it. It sounds like I read through some of Bloomberg's summary and they it sounds like a lot of disinformation, mm-hmm. to be to be frank. Um, obviously, there will be some long term effects on the Russian economy as it transitions away from economics with the West and turns to Asia. But included in that report is is talk about Russians will face food shortages. I'm mm-hmm. like, what are you talking about? Russia is the, the world's number one supplier of wheat and several other grains mm-hmm. to the world. And uh, it, 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 it sounded uh, there were some things that didn't. Didn't make sense. But obviously, Russia is is seeking import substitution of the things that it can't transition to make at home from countries like China. That makes everything for the United States Mm. and Europe anyway. Um, And the idea that there's really anything that, um, you know, certainly at at a consumer or, or industrial basis that the west make the west makes that china isn't making or can't make mm-hmm. in short order uh, I, I i find it to be a little 
to be bordering on 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 wishful thinking and and propagandistic. Obviously, I think you're right that there is a kind of a game of chicken economically <laughs> being played. Uh, Russia is certainly upping their game uh, with uh, apparently um, shutting down Nord Stream One. Uh, for the long term uh, until sanctions are lifted. It has to be mentioned that there still are several other Russian gas pipelines pumping gas currently to Europe. Mm. There's Turkstream, there's uh, the Druzhba, uh, uh, the Yamal through Belarus. Uh, so uh, it's not the case yet. There is a lot of room for escalation still here. And Europe is already panicking simply because Nord Stream 1 is 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 going offline. Of course, that will hit Germany, the heart of Europe, more uh, than some of the other countries. Turkstream, for instance, supplies mostly uh, southern European countries, obviously, with, with um, uh, gas. Uh, so um, I think if it is a game of chicken— uh, the EU will fail this game long, long before uh, Russia does. Yeah, the food shortages thing raised my eyebrows as well. I thought, oh, I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure about that. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that's happening with this um, this game of chicken is that you have OPEC Plus basically saying to the U.S. and the EU that uh, looks like energy prices are your problem, not ours. Right. OPEC Plus announced yesterday it was going to cut production. Uh, so the group had basically, you know, Joe Biden made his trip to, to Jeddah. Uh, the group bumped production by 100,000 barrels. That was not very much. Uh, that was for the month of September. It's going to knock it back down in October. Uh, the group says oil prices have been falling. They're worried about demand, particularly if Iranian oil is going to be back on global markets soon. Uh, I also see reporting that many members of the group, whether they want to say it or not, are pumping at capacity and can't really produce anymore. Um, but there is also a lot of analysis about this decision that says this is essentially a political message to the U.S. and Europe that, you know, we're here to make money and not, you know, uh, save your political behind. So I wonder what you think is going on here. Yeah. First of all, I don't expect Iranian oil to reenter the market mm -hmm. anytime in the immediate future. I mean, they've been talking about the JCPOA, the entirety of, of the Biden administration yeah. so far. They haven't reached any deal. And even if they signed it tomorrow, it would be a long time before Iran. I mean, oil production is not something that you can just uh, turn off and turn on the next day. And whoo, there's there's oil flowing mm -hmm. in in uh, container ships across the market. It would take months uh, to to ramp up production. And OPEC is obviously sing signaling that they want the price of oil above a hundred dollars a barrel. Yeah. Um, which is not something that the United States uh, wants. Um, I think also, uh, also um, you know, as 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 a part of, you know, their broader reaction to the Western uh, sanctions war on Russia, they are extremely uncomfortable with the idea of of this Western attempted price cap on uh, one of the world's largest, depending on the year, the largest, you know, the world's largest supplier of oil, um, mm. because uh, that is a very bad precedent that all of them see could be applied to them. So I think they are continually re reacting, you know, continuing to react negatively to Biden's, you know, top handed efforts to dictate things uh, to them. And I mean, one of the things that's gone very unreported is this is one of the big increasers 
in buying of Russian oil other than China and India, which whose demand is ever increasing. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing is Saudi Arabia. Mm. Saudi Arabia is buying huge quantities of Russian oil. And you're like, why would because they're using it for their own domestic needs um, already in a refined capacity and then selling their own premium but unrefined uh, crude at an even higher markup back to the Western countries that are trying to make up for their loss of, of Russia. So the market has a finite supply and the market is dealing with it um, and uh, the West does not control the market. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Talk to us a little bit about this this price cap, right? Uh, the G7 uh said that they they proposed a price cap on Russian oil. They were going to try and implement it by this winter. But even as they said, oh, yeah, okay, we've come up with this idea, uh, the members of the G7 are saying, we don't know how we're going to agree between ourselves on how to implement it. And we are also going to need the rest of the world to get on board here, which they have really notably not been able to do when it comes to uh, some Asian and and particularly African countries joining in on the, uh, the blockade of Russia. So I wonder how likely you think it is that the G7 is going to be able to make this price cap happen. Oh, I I think that they will implement it. I think the inevitable result of this is that energy prices will go even higher Mm -hmm. um, than than they already are. I mean, it is certainly not going to have the desired effect whatsoever. I mean, let's let's say that you don't like that I'm selling cookies Mm -hmm. and you don't buy any of my cookies at the moment, but you say you can't sell your cookies for uh, more than 50 cents when you're already selling them for a dollar. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, people are just crowding past you to buy my cookies. And you tell me I will only pay 50 cents for your cookies. <laughs> and I say, OK, no cookies for you. And that's the end of the story. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's <laughs> That's it. There is no way that the U.S. is going to get China and India, not even their own uh, long term ally, Saudi Arabia, to agree to this. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it's it's simply not going to happen. And I really don't know why they're continuing to to toss this, um, you know, uh, pie in the sky idea, I guess, is the most positive uh, thing that you could call it around. It's ridiculous. Yeah, you wonder who it's for. I do, like, if there is a domestic audience that really wants to to hear this, I don't. I, yeah, I, I think it's a. I think it's a good question. I couldn't follow the analogy because it was impossible for me to imagine a scenario where I wouldn't want someone to be selling cookies just <laughs> near me yeah, all the time. I, I, it's the same thing with oil, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, sure. Give you it to may me. not, you know, personally buy oil, but you know, everything you do depends on oil, uh-huh. one way or another. Uh-huh. So including making cookies. Yes. I mean, absolutely. I'm going to do that tonight. Uh, I wanted to ask you also about this meeting that Russia has requested under Article 5 of the Biological Weapons Convention, right? That is the article that says we will get together to consult to solve any problems related to implementing the Biological Weapons Convention. Uh, There was apparently a planning session at the end of August, and yesterday, uh, several days of consultations began. I was wondering if you could tell us what Russia specifically uh, is is alleging here and what concerns they are bringing to this meeting? Sure. I mean, the, the, the Russian um, uh, accusations are pretty clear that uh, the uh, Pentagon has been funding uh, bio laboratory research 
um, in Ukraine at multiple sites, uh, mostly right along the Russian border, something which incidentally they also do around China and, and a few other countries that they don't have great relations with. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, this fact is indisputable. I mean, we've 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 heard Victoria Newland ad- ad- admit this under testimony. Um, and I mean, besides the fact that there's 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 plenty of of uh, documentary evidence mm-hmm. that this has happened. Russia is also presenting evidence that they have recovered from their military intervention in Ukraine, uh, that they say that there's evidence that this the, the research that they're funding uh, includes work uh, with several uh, possible um, uh, weaponized um, biological agents, uh, in, in, including uh, even the dissemination of them by uh, drone spraying, mm. uh, so forth, some of, of the incidences uh, that I have seen. So we know that some of it is definitely true, despite uh, Western uh, U.S. attempts previously to deny this. The only question is, is, is the rest of it true? Of course, these consultations are not going to do that, but what they are going to do is draw more public attention uh, to the Russian accusations. What is what Russia wants here? They are what they're really ultimately demanding is transparency, something that the U.S. will will not grant them. Mm-hmm. Right. They're not going to allow Russian inspectors or Chinese inspectors into their analog. And it has to be said that the Chinese are equally concerned about this phenomenon because they are seeing them themselves. And if they're really innocuous, and there's nothing to this, then why not some transparency? Mm-hmm. And why are they being funded by the Pentagon and not the Department of Health in the United States? Mm-hmm. You, you see where uh, there's a history here of U.S. use of bioagents in Asia previously, in some previous conflicts that might make um, some of the countries uh, currently being surrounded by these biolabs nervous. And and that is what Russia is is demanding some attention and some transparency to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because there really is not, I couldn't find very much reporting on this at all, right? I had just went, I had to go yeah. to the calendar for the UN meetings to confirm that it was happening and try and look it up. So, you know, any yeah. any attention at all will be more attention. And I do think, you know, I, I think if people understood uh, the U.S. history of using these weapons uh, a little bit more and got a little bit more education, they would, you know, see this as something other than just a ploy and not opportunity for the, you know, the pot to call the kettle black, which, you know, it may also be. uh, But it is it remains true that the U.S., you know, there have been very serious allegations about the U.S. doing this in the Korean War. It's admitted to testing weapons on its own sailors for decades during the Cold War. Uh, So, yeah, all of the media sort of treating this as though it's nothing but a joke in Russian trolling, like, uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a definite campaign of silence going on. And the only reply is debunked Russian claims. And you're like, mm-hmm. well, exactly how have these debunked? Yeah. And they said the Pentagon says it's not true. Okay. Oh, all right. True. Yeah. Well, well, just some of the parts. And, and how do we know they're not true? Because the Pentagon says they're not true. Yeah. Oh, OK. Well, that's debunked. then. I mean, I mean, uh, you know, we're winning the war in Afghanistan for 20 years, according to the Pentagon, up until they're not. Mm-hmm. So uh, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Forgive me for not ultimately trusting the Pentagon, uh, you know, uh, as what they say automatically debunks something. And the fact that the media takes it to show 
shows that they're pretty much not really a media anymore. They're just the propaganda. No, journalism is easy, Mark. You just write down what people say. There's no need to make it more complicated than I, that. I thought that was stenography. I know. I'm so confused. <laughs> uh, talk to us also, you know, there had been a very long ne- process of negotiation to to uh, allow IAEA inspectors to get to the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. They were there over the weekend. The organization has apparently left two monitors to remain at the site uh, indefinitely is is what I saw. And uh, the inspectors were going to brief the U.N. Security Council today uh, could be underway right now. I was pretty sure it was not going to happen before our conversation. But I wonder if you can update us a little bit on what what these inspectors have already indicated about their visit and whether you think, you know, if you are going to have now these these U.N. inspectors on site for the foreseeable future, if that is going to affect some change in the way the war is being waged around that territory. Yeah, first of all, it's obviously not going to change anything, because while the International Atomic Energy Inspectors were there, the Kiev regime conducted two large-scale amphibious commando raves across the Kohovka dnieper Reservoir to try to seize control of the plant, first in the hours before they arrived. And when that one failed, two days later, they tried it while there were actually inspectors still on site, which they still are. And the shelling has continued during this time period. So quite obviously, it's not going to change anything. In fact, if, if we have any indication, it was only an escalation mm-hmm. so far. Um, and Friday, also before the IAE team, uh, they knocked out the last emergency electricity supply to the reactors, which um, they, 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 they damaged it. There was a fire. Uh, the uh, operators, the Ukrainian operators there, had to take it offline briefly and mm-hmm. then reconnect it. But they're basically operating on emergency electricity supply at this point because all of the other lines have been knocked down by shelling. Uh, There's only one of the six plants up and running at this point, and it's operating at very reduced capacity. Um, So um, I don't expect anything out of this International Atomic Energy Agency report Mm -hmm. because the work of this agency is so politicized and scrutinized and everything. They're not going to come out of it and say, oh, it it was Ukraine all along, or actually it was Putin. He was showing Mm -hmm. his own people, uh, you know, in the plant. And and that, that is not going to happen out of this report. They're simply going to say that their six or seven pillars of safe nuclear plant operation are not being met because. Duh, it's a war zone mm-hmm. and the plant is being fired on. Um, and uh, they're going to keep a couple people there to continue to monitor. But uh, obviously, their presence isn't having any real effect. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm, I'm afraid that it's not going to result in anything positive. Mm-hmm. Let me also ask you, before we let you go, about this uh, visa issue between the U.S. and Russia. Uh, the last report I saw on this was from a couple days ago, so I can only assume that the U.S. has still not issued visas for Russian diplomats to come to New York for the annual U.N. General Assembly meeting, which, you know, is supposed to—like, like parts of it will begin next week. 
Russia has sent a letter to the U.N. secretary general saying we need visas. We have an advanced team that's supposed to come. We don't have visas for our journalists. The U.S. is playing games. This is not acceptable. And uh, the U.S. says for its part, we're processing everything. We take our job as U.N. host very seriously. Uh, but of sure course, we, we can't comment <laughs> on individual decisions. Right. So I wonder if you think, is this the U.S. playing games? And if they are, of course, it's the US playing is it a new tactic then? Is this, is this something new? No. Yeah. No, I mean, the U.S. has already done this before with Iran, with Venezuela. And in, in the end, they will provide a smaller number of visas than Russia wants <laughs> last minute. This is the U.S. being petty and playing games with access to the United Nations, yeah. uh, which, of course, is something that only again, there's long precedent for this. The U.S. has been doing this for a long time. It is the pettiest of petty. Um, and it is only, of course, increasing uh, calls for a relocation of of the primary, uh, you know, uh, UN offices out of New York towards an actually neutral country mm-hmm. uh, that takes it that does take its host duties seriously, unlike the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty far from neutral here in the United States when it comes to the UN. <laughs> That was International Affairs and Security Analyst Mark Sloboda. Mark, we always really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a quick break here and come back to talk about Liz Truss. Very, not very exciting (laughs) change of leadership in the UK and uh, what that means for that country and maybe the rest of the world. You are listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we'll be right back. where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte, and we are going to talk a little bit about the change of leadership in the UK, which is, of course, not a change of politics, just a new head of the same party. Uh, We're also going to talk about the energy crisis in the United Kingdom right now and whether anyone in a leadership position is uh, offering any kind of way out of it. Joining us is news analyst and co-host of Fault Lines on Sputnik Radio, Jamal Thomas. Jamal, thanks for talking to us today. Yeah, Michelle, how's it going? I'm doing fine. Excellent. So, talk. Yeah, doing all right. We're, yeah, we're terrific. John's still on vacation, so I'm he. Uh, you know, he's doing better than I am, but I'm all right. <laughs> so I'm back at work. So, Liz Truss, right? Liz Truss, former foreign minister of the UK. Uh, really, always came across as kind of a dim bulb when she wasn't making. Uh, kind of scary statements like uh, being ready to take part in a nuclear war. Yeah. So she has taken over the prime ministership in the UK after, you know, a bunch of people from her party decided she was the best option to replace Boris Johnson. Uh, Is anyone beside Liz Truss and her immediate family excited about this? Right. Does she have a base? Is she does she have support? Um, So it depends on who you mean. Right. So in the public. I don't see it. Mm-hmm. I mean, but again, that's the layperson thing. I, I listened to her speech and I thought to myself, God, she's out, out, of, out to lunch. Mm-hmm. Like, meaning when you're talking to the people who are on the ground, those people are very clear. And they're, all of them are willing to talk, like right off the bat. So they say, hey, um, so Liz trusts your new prime minister. And then it opens the floodgates. Um, no, 
she's out the lunch. I mean, the, the issue that seems to be hitting Britain more than anything else is cost. Mm-hmm. The amount of money they're paying for energy, the amount of money they're paying for food, the amount of money that they have in their pockets. All of that stuff is basically going through the roof. It has been going through the roof all the way back, even before Brexit. Mm-hmm. But definitely Brexit set it off. The way to describe it, though, is they make the point of saying there was never a situation or change, meaning after Brexit, bills and expenses went up. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, immediately you're sending things across the border and everything else. So they never recovered from one shock before getting hit with another shock, mm-hmm. whether it was COVID, Brexit, and now the energy issue. Yeah. I, see, I mean, they're estimating 10.6% increase. I'm sorry, 18.6% increase by the first of the year. And, you know, when you're talking to the people there, they're like, how are we supposed to afford that? Mm-hmm. And the answer is many of them can't. And, you know, even when I'm engaging them and saying, OK, well, do you think she's going to do anything? It was like, yeah, no. Yeah. Because keep in mind, Liz Truss is basically arguing she's going to cut taxes. And it's like, but inflation is already at 18 point. It will be at 18.6 percent, ideally. Mm-hmm. What do you mean you're cutting taxes? And they're raising um, interest rates just like they are here in the United States. And again, you raise interest rates because the idea is you're trying to combat inflation. You're trying to cut the money supply. Mm-hmm. So there's not that much money sloshing around in the economy and everything else Mm -hmm. in order to try to bring it down. Well, if she's saying we're going to, you know, lower taxes and everything else. Well, what is that? What if that just means everyone has less money? Yeah. For these bills that are getting higher and higher. It's super weird. Now, she is saying that she's going to come up with some kind of energy program within the first um, within the first within the first week in office. Mm -hmm. Uh, But nobody knows what that is and nobody knows what that means. I mean, the idea that a conservatory, keep in mind, let's trust was part of the government that was like, you know, we're spending too much money on environmental standards and safety, Mm -hmm. in which case they had sewage going through the beaches of the UK. Yeah. This summer, actually. Mm -hmm. I saw that story. It's like, what is this woman who doesn't want to do this stuff um, normally? Meaning she would have to go counter to her own political instincts in order to even do anything for it. The public is not optimistic, at least the public that I've spoken to. I've talked to like 10 people yesterday. Everybody I ran into, I talked to. Let me talk to you. all of them were willing. I want to ask you about this energy crisis because, of course, like, you know, if if you're on sp- social media looking at this stuff, you see small businesses posting their energy bills online that, you know, are like it increases by 10 times or whatever. People saying, I don't know how I'm going to pay this. Uh, the morning show this morning did a, did a like spin to win segment where they spin a big wheel and it's like you win a thousand pounds, you win three thousand pounds or you win getting your energy bills paid, which was what one contestant won. And he was very excited about. And so I'm wondering if you can. That's so sad. Could, yeah. But so can you confirm? Are, are these, you know, you sort of alluded to this, but I wanted to get it more con- concretely. Are these outliers or is this really something that is happening to, no, to your, that's normal. yeah, it's uh-huh. normal. It's your uh-huh. average person going, normal. yeah. Everybody you run into has the same story. One guy was like, he's says food has gone up like twice, like meaning almost double than what they were paying for it at first. Mm-hmm. And he was even making like, how do we afford that? He was talking about how he's spending that much money on petrol basically oil uh, for the car. Um, another person was talking about he expected some level of riots or political instability. And all of them had the exact same story. How are we supposed to afford this? Yeah. And looking for a political solution to it, there was no political solution. By the way, whether it was labor or whether it was um, conservatives, yeah. they didn't see a way out in either scenario. It's very weird. I mean, even the weird with Brexit, when Brexit happened, the way they describe it, is that you had a lot of people who kept that economy going, basically left. Mm-hmm. And there were certain jobs that might have been available, but Brits don't want to do those jobs. Kind of like here in the United States, where it's like, yeah, we could kick out the immigrants, but who's going to pick your 
vegetables and fruits and everything else. Same issue. Mm-hmm. The rub is those people, a lot of those people did leave the UK. Mm-hmm. And so now with Liz Truss, she's coming into all sorts of calamity and she's been very cagey on how she's going to basically solve those issues. Mm-hmm. And the public, at least the public I've spoken to, has no way or no idea how she would do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, even for example, even if you freeze energy costs, what you're freezing energy costs at a level where they've already spiked. Yeah. Like that's people already that, can't afford it. Yeah. Yeah. He was like, he was like, we're already under siege in regards to the cost that we're trying to pay. So what if you freeze them at this level? It is still demonstratively more than what we can afford and what we can pay. Yeah. And again, this was, this wasn't like, okay, one random guy. This was a doctor, cab driver, a guy at the hotel, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Anybody that I went into and engaged, they basically had the exact same story. It's astonishing. Since you- now they do, and even on the issue of Ukraine, for example, because I asked, I was like, are you, is it really worth that much? Like, does the public here really believe that Ukraine matters mm-hmm. that much? Where you're taking a hit like this. And he says, there's only one singular narrative on the issue of Ukraine in the UK. Yeah. Now, whether the public believes it or public perceives it that way or not, it's almost secondary to the point. He's like English speakers, meaning he was making a distinction between English versus the other people who basically live there. Mm-hmm. He's like English speakers open their homes to Ukrainians and everything else. He said by the same token, um, it could be meaning he was trying to make the point of they're pathological on the issue mm-hmm. of Ukraine. But like, uh, but he's also said, look, I don't know how long people are going to accept this. I don't know how people are going to deal and cover their expenses. And they have an election what, in two years. Mm-hmm. They, they don't believe when Boris Johnson got in office, Boris Johnson called a snap election in order to enshrine his legitimacy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, all right, I, I got it. I, I overcame David, not Theresa May. Yeah. And now I'm going to show that I'm the legitimate prime minister with the public to vote for me. And, I, you know, this is my height of my powers. Yeah. Well, if trust does that, she's going to lose. Yeah. She's going to lose. And to get across how, how warped this is. Keir Starmer has the political uh, charisma of a baked potato. Wait, let me ask you. Uh, and yet. Keir Starmer, of course, lead, leader of the Labour Party, right? Labour. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. He had charisma of a baked potato. And yet it's possible that Labour would win if they had an election right now. Well, what is Labour doing right now? I'm very curious. Sure. Yeah. Doing it seems like the, not doing they have they have engaged in this process for the past couple of years of purging Anyone who, you know, was was sort of uh, stridently opposed to war, purging the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn. And now you you think like what what kind of opposition can they present right now? They are 100 percent on board, it seems like, with what the government is doing in terms of its foreign policy. That is a large part of what has created this energy crisis. So what? Yes. What can they do? Well, that's the rub, right? Mm -hmm. One guy said he expect labor to put put more people on the dole, basically put more people on. Mm-hmm. Government benefits. And but the rub is it's like and that driver, he was like, Yeah, they probably put more people on government benefits. I want to be giving these people more money. Mm-hmm. And I kind of made the point to was like, but dude, you five minutes ago, you said that people can't afford it, that those people are going into poverty. And so if you're not putting those people on government benefits, what are those people going to do? Mm-hmm. I mean, think about it. There were reports talking about British women going into prostitution mm-hmm. at higher rates now because they can't afford their expenses. Nightclubs are not able to basically stay on in the way they would typically stay on because, you know, they can't necessarily, again, afford to keep the lights on. Mm-hmm. And all things been equal from the standpoint of energy, that seems to just get worse. Like, I don't know if she has a solution for this. She's basically saying, I'm going to come up with an energy plan for the public within a week. And after that week, I'm going to come up with a long-term energy solution. Yeah. Nobody knows what that means. Yeah. Nobody knows what that means. No, that's... She's talking about tax cuts. She's talking about 
the healthcare. She even brought up the NHS, which was just completely mysterious. Mm-hmm. Just a random line in her in her speech. Oh, we're gonna suss out the NHS. Okay, what's what that? What does that mean? Yeah, what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, like all things being equal, Tories hate the NHS, and so the idea of sussing it out, I, I cringed when she said that. Mm-hmm. I mean, she has a tall order. Boris Johnson left a massive calamity. Mm-hmm. And look, whatever his political instincts, and I'll give it to him, he beat the stuffing out of Jeremy Corbyn. Mm-hmm. But he beat the stuffing out of Jeremy Corbyn for the exact reason you mentioned. Keir Starmer and the back benches were basically putting a knife at Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. Jeremy Corbyn, original Brexiteer, could not come on and say he was from Brexit, right. which is appalling. Yeah. And so you have this thing again where the conservatives basically topple, the government collapses, and another conservative comes in. And in her case, it doesn't seem like she's going to call a snap election. She's going to wait as long as she possibly can mm-hmm. to push that election with the idea of trying to get something done in the between time that she can justify yeah. um, voting for her again. But nobody that I've talked to has any clue what that would be or how she could do anything for <laughs> it. Doesn't it. sound good. Every they time feel like they're just ping ponging back and forth. Every time I read about the UK, it's, it's like eye poppingly bad. It's a uh, it, it is yeah. It's shocking. It's like okay, are they they the mayor? What is it? Um, Con basically made the point of saying, you know, this might not be an issue for Brits on whether or not they are going to have to choose between heating bills and food. It may be a situation where they can't get either. Oh, my God. Think about that. Like, that's that's Britain. The sun never yeah. sets on the British Empire. Yeah. And yet looks like, you know, looks like something said. Let me ask you. They're in dire straits. Let me ask you on Ukraine uh, how people are responding to these reports that. Russia and Ukraine, this is the story from last week, that Russia and Ukraine had apparently agreed, you know, tentatively, right? There was a tentative peace deal on the table. That's it right. was a... And Bojo came and... Yeah, it's a pretty good one for Ukraine in April. This is according to Fiona Hill in Foreign Policy. And then, as you say, Boris Johnson pops up in Kiev to tell Zelensky that he shouldn't be talking to Vladimir Putin and that even if That's Ukraine was ready for a deal, the West wasn't. Uh, and exactly. Who knows yes. what would have happened, right? Who who knows? Yeah. Uh, but I uh, is this is this a topic of conversation for people at all in the UK? It is not. Mm-hmm. It should be. It's not. Yeah. I mean, because think about it for the moment. For my framing of the world, you have these European nations that basically tied themselves to the United States and jumped off of a cliff, mm-hmm. and none of them really looked down to see, okay, does this parachute work? Meaning nobody checked the parachute; they just jumped. Mm-hmm. And after jumping. It's as if they didn't fully grasp that U.S. foreign policy interest is different than European foreign policy interests. They acted as if those things were the same. Mm-hmm. But the United States is a major oil producer at this point. Yeah, Europe is not. Europe takes, what, like 40 percent of LNG or something like that? Mm-hmm. And so Gazprom has been shut off. I kept saying, like, for the last several months, they're going to shut it off. They're going to shut it off. Yeah. Shut it off. Figure it out. And so you would think that the public would say to themselves, well, wait a minute. You mean that there was a peace deal that could have been affected, that we wouldn't have to be getting hit like this, mm-hmm. that maybe we could have turned back on the taps? You know, Never mind those terms, sparing the, the lives of the people who are actually fighting this war. And that. Yeah. And that. But again, we, we've said it before, fight to the last day in Ukraine. Yeah. I mean, all things being, what's the guy, Crenshaw, the one in here in the United States, yeah, he made a comment like, he said, this is a great bargain. We basically give money and they go and fight the Russians for us. Yeah. Well, in the UK, Liz Truss even said something like, we're going to send troops, so we should send British troops to fight in Ukraine. Like, the woman is a lunatic. Full stop. Yeah, she has um, been more inflammatory than Bojo on a number of occasions. And which is astonishing to even think about, right? Mm. Like, Bo- Bojo is the guy who came out and says, well, Porton Down said that, that the Russians killed the Skirples. Yeah. And Porton Down guy was like, yeah, we never said that. <laughs> I mean, he's had this, like, Boris Johnson has this calamitous uh, prime ministership. 
And now he's handed over to Trust, who's a neocon. And the catch is, and I, I strongly suspect, I keep making this argument that there's going to be political destabilization in Europe as a result of the economic destabilization. The mm-hmm. public is not going to accept it. So you get Draghi, who sees the writing on the wall and jumps ship. It's like all the rats are jumping off the ship. Well, Draghi jumps first. The Italian government collapses. Mm-hmm. You get the Bulgarian government collapses. You get Prague, Prague of all places. Yeah, with huge demonstration. 100,000 people protesting. Astonishing. Yeah. And then you get the British government collapsing. You get France, uh, Macron, losing his governing majority. Mm-hmm. That's not going to stop them. And the way that the people are talking, they're pissed. They're they're extremely angry. They may not create this association, or they may make the association with Ukraine and everything else, but all things in, but being equal, they care about their own needs first. Mm-hmm. How, roving blackouts. I mean, there's even talk about roving blackouts of Europe, in Europe of all places. Like, this is not a third world country or, you know, like Timbuktu somewhere in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. where they can barely get a, like have a hamster running on a wheel in order for power. This is Europe. Yeah. With a, with... I, my thing is there's no way they're going to accept that. I don't believe it. Uh, have you heard anything about protests either either uh, actually underway or planned in London over some of these conditions or in other parts of the UK? Not yet. The guy, one of the guys I was talking to made the point of saying when this kicks off, it kicks off. He, he, he is looking for a spark. That sets things off. Because mm-hmm. the, the way the way he was explaining it, he says, look, you can have a population to struggle only for so long before the population starts to assert itself and push back on the fact that it's under those in those dire straits. And in the way that, you know, especially if it's hitting their wallets, like I don't have the money to feed my kid. Mm-hmm. I don't have the money to feed my wife or to feed my family. I have to choose between, um, you know, this bill versus eating. That is a disastrous choice. I mean, even if. And, and again, trust is a Tory. And so whatever she's going to do, I mean, there, I forget one of the other policies that she was pushing, but that policy is just going to directly affect, give more money to the rich. Mm-hmm. She doesn't care, mm-hmm. right? She's a Tory. And so it does, it seems like what is going on with the public, or the very least from the public's perspective, the government is out to lunch on doing anything real and substantial. One guy made the point of saying, look, if they take energy prices back to where it was, okay, then fair enough, we can talk. But if you freeze them, or even if you bring up the minimum wage to a certain level, um, that's above it. That's not what they're doing, though. Yeah. And so, regardless of what happens, the people are always in the rears. Regard, even if even when government acts, it's like the public itself is still always in the rears. Yeah. Think back, even when Cameron was in office, phone food banks skyrocketed. <laughs> this was before Brexit. This was before the Russian gas thing. This was before anything else. Mm-hmm. These guys, like food banks, were going up just based on. Tory policy and everything else. Well, now you've had Brexit. You've had um, this kind of breakdown with Europe. With, which and also, you had COVID. One of the things that we haven't talked about is this this summer, you have this massive heat wave and, and drought, which yeah. is only exacerbating right. these issues, right? So you have people who are already yes. going without energy in, in the summer uh, when they really needed to Great be point. cooled. Yeah. I am glad you brought that up because, you know, one of the things they kept saying, OK, we're we're we need people to cut energy by 15 percent. This is Europe, not necessarily the UK. Mm-hmm. We need people to cut energy by 15 percent each state and come to find out well, that's not enough. That's not enough. You can turn on your thermostats. You can take those cold showers all you want. <laughs> it's not enough. And so when you're looking at the UK on this front, the energy costs are expected to just dramatically spike, like dramatically so. It is hard to get across. Mm-hmm. Like what the people are currently paying and what the expectation is that they're going to be paying mm-hmm. later. Um, there's no relief. Yeah. Like, you know, all things being equal, where are they going to get the energy from? Um, how much is it going to cost, even if they can't get their hands on it? Mm. Will the government 
uh, subsidize it in one sense. And how is that going to affect issues of food and everything else? Yeah. Hey, Jamal. Like, let's trust. It's going to have a major job on our hands. I think that's exactly right. Jamal, we're going to have to let you go. That was Jamal Thomas. You can hear more from him every day on our morning show here, Fault Lines on Sputnik Radio. Jamal, thanks for joining us so much. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back to talk about some more domestic issues. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte, and we are, as I said, jumping into some more domestic issues now. We, of course, have the decision by a federal judge to grant Trump his special master, a possibility that was treated as a joke in some quarters for the past week or so. Uh, We have warnings of an alliance of left and right against business interests. Uh, that we are supposed to be scared of. I'm wondering if we really should. We have a youth curfew right next to D.C. uh, that is being imposed with a goal of reducing juvenile crime. I do not know that it ever achieves these kinds of goals. And uh, we might get into, if we have some time, this uh, open letter by a bunch of former Pentagon leaders about the strained military-civilian relationship in the U.S. right now. So we will see what we have time for. Joining us in this conversation is writer and journalist Dan Lazar. Dan, great to talk to you. Thanks for being here again. Uh, Thanks for having me. Let's start with Donald Trump. Uh, Yesterday, a federal judge granted his request that a special master review documents taken from his Mar-a-Lago home last month. The special master can now evaluate the, I guess it is 11,000 or so documents taken from Mar-a-Lago by the FBI to see if they should be protected by attorney-client privilege and also to see if they should be protected by executive privilege, uh, which the New York Times says typically protects confidential internal executive branch deliberations. So now, for the time being, the Department of Justice cannot use these materials in its investigation into whether Trump illegally held on to these documents or obstructed justice in their return. The special master now has to vet them first. And uh, the Times has found a lot of legal experts to question this decision uh, on other grounds, including the Justice Department's declaration that it is itself part of the executive branch and Trump's not in office anymore. So this whole executive privilege thing should not apply. Uh, The criticism is basically that the judge... It would be reasonable for the judge to uh, allow a special master to check for attorney-client privilege, but that she has gone far beyond that to look into this idea of executive privilege. Uh, I wonder what you make of this decision. Well, all the usual suspects are are very upset. I mean, Andrew Weissman, uh, the the, the prosecutor who essentially was, uh, you know, was uh, uh, Robert Mueller's ghostwriter. uh, essentially, you know, so calls it a, a decision that is that is false on its face. He's calling for a quick appeal mm. and hopes will be overturned. Uh, I, I must say that I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm neutral to sympathetic to Trump's point of view. Uh, I, I mean, I think this is a very aggressive move by the DOJ, um, and I am really uh, worried about the press. 
of, you know, where where Justice Department feels obliged under each new administration, the Justice Department feels obliged or feels free to to go after the previous presidents, um, you know, uh, mm-hmm. private papers or documents or whatever, uh, because, you know, it, it opens the door to a, a whole bunch of horrors. I mean, you know, once Joe Biden is out of office uh, and if a Republican takes his place, then you know damn well the DOJ will break down his door at the earliest of opportunities, mm-hmm. search his, you know, his, his home for any, you know, improper documents, probably find some, you know, some scribbled note he wrote to himself or mm-hmm. some laundry list or or whatever, you know. And, you know, and haul them away in handcuffs. I mean, it really is a very strange, very provocative um, and very unsettling uh, move. So I'm not at all upset. Uh, I'm not I'm not surprised the legal establishment is upset. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I, 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 I want to see how this turns out. I think it'll delay the investigation. But, you know, why is that such a big deal? And the DOJ, uh, as far as I can see, ha- has not appealed, has not said it's going to appeal. So, oh, I presume it will at mm-hmm. some point. I mean, certainly their investigation is being uh, is being uh, delayed, so they have uh, they have every reason to appeal. And if the and if the Times, if, if all the experts, you know, you know, mobilized by the New York Times are correct that this whole thing is the judge in this case is going out on a limb, then you know, then 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 Garland will have. Uh, a, a reason to file an appeal. But, yeah, but, but Garland's a, a super duper cautious guy. He he is the um he is at the the center of the center of the center of the road. So uh, so I, I'm confident he will uh, take whatever steps that he duly thinks are necessary. It's interesting to watch this process play out. I mean, one of the things the judge said uh, was that because Trump was formerly the president, he faces unprecedented reputational harm and stigma if a search is conducted improperly or if sensitive information is improperly disclosed, uh, which is, you know, one of the aspects of this decision that people are getting most upset about this executive privilege idea. But it is very odd to watch you know, on one hand, this insistence that no one is above the law and you have to act like no one is above the law when we all know this is not true, not just about the president, but if, you know, members of Congress are insider trading all day long, every, we know this, you know? And so it's a kind of, it's an odd uh, process to unfold where on one hand, you sort of have to acknowledge that being the president is a special role, even if you don't acknowledge that part of being the president is committing crimes like uh, aggressive wars and, you know, lying to Congress and lying to the public, whatever. Um, But also you have this sort of pretense that no one is above the law and it's going to come for you even handedly. I mean, is it right that that the president should, you know, uh, that he should get some special concern as the judge expressed? And what do you make of this just the attempt to present, you know, walk this line between we're all equal, except some are more equal than others. It, it's a it's a it's a mess. I mean, it's, it's really is, you know, it really is a minefield. I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, come on. I mean, I mean, if anybody who has a right to fear unauthorized leaks by the FBI and the DOJ, it's Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, come yeah. on, let's, let's let's get real. I mean, the 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 the, the FBI turned his administration 
upside down before he even took office via the leak of the uh, of the um, of the dossier by uh, mm-hmm. by Christopher Steele. Mm-hmm. I mean that com- that that essentially destroyed. You know, it left Trump paralyzed, left him dangling for months. And that was a that was an, an unauthorized leak, and that, and that and one by the way that has never really been fully explained. Mm-hmm. So you know, so uh, you know, so so yeah, so of course Trump has 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 reason for concern, and of course it's you know it's it's quite understandable. Uh, you know, the 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 Justice Department is a sieve; it is filled with people who are brimming with hostility to Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, so, yeah, so, so I, I, a judge, I, I, that should, that should make a judge concerned and want to ensure that, you know, that, 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 you know, that, that the whole process is done in an even handed fashion. I also, I want to ask about this, this opinion piece in the Hill, uh, that sort of, it's politics in the U S perhaps echoing something that's going along in Europe. Uh, it argues that what we shouldn't be looking for in the midterm is either a, a blue wave or a red wave. Uh, what is rising are, this is the words of the piece, the twin tides of progressive, progressivism and populism. Uh, and one line from the piece says, from the White House to state houses, skepticism, scrutiny and pressure will rise as a new wave of politicians from both parties is elected in November, for whom criticizing business has proven to be a resonant line of attack on the campaign trail and in office. This means businesses have more at stake this fall than just which party controls Congress and state legislatures. And I do think maybe there is something interesting here. Uh, Earlier in the show, we talked about some of the protests in Europe over the weekend that saw in the course of protesting cost of living crises, uh, speakers notably featured who were from both the far left and, and the far right. And now, you know, the left is often accused by the center by the center left uh, of getting into red brown alliances, right? Which is usually a way to try to discredit uh, the actual elements of the left. Um, but, you know, there there is increasing conversation about, you know, what is being termed a, the extremist center. It is not the far left or the far right that has created this global energy crisis. And I personally I'm not really mad at a situation in which you have both sides of the aisle criticizing business. I I do think, you know, oftentimes this sort of horseshoe theory thing is a smear. But are we also in a reality where we are seeing a sort of a hard left, hard right alliance? Uh, It's coming together to, to protest things in Europe. Are we sort of seeing some of this happening in the United States? And I don't know if we are. Is that what is there any possibility that this is not just once again the left hel- helping to usher in the hard right you know as as we've seen the center do in the past do, do you think this is happening and should we be wary of it or should we be maybe a little encouraged boy okay so, <laughs> sorry it's so, a lot it's a lot yeah i mean first of all number one i don't believe in the horseshoe theory either mm-hmm. i mean i believe that the left is left the right is right and there is there's no convergence between the two, although occasionally there's a very curious kind of overlap. Uh, but I also agree. I mean, things are really confusing out there, mm-hmm. and we and we do have this phenomenon of the extreme center, which is which is kind of kind of going nuts. Yeah, it's you know it's 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 waging war, it's promoting censorship, 
it's uh, it's engaging and you know and, and round the clock propaganda. It accuses who it accuses its opponents regularly of being you know of being Russian you know uh, bots you know in bed with with uh, Vladimir Putin you know uh, Chinese commies sim- you know uh, mm-hmm. uh, simps et cetera et cetera et cetera. So so it's very confusing. It's very volatile. The seas are really choppy, and uh, you know, and, and everybody is like, you know, is, is, is steering, you know, is paddling like mad in order to keep afloat. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, so 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 that said, and, and also we also have these the, the the economic storms are intensifying. So so yeah, people are getting really really upset. Um, the their their reaction is confused and kind of inchoate, um, and it's. It's not clear how it will, how it will break out, um, but 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 a couple of things are are apparent. One is the war in in the Ukraine is not going well from NATO's point of view. Uh, number two is that inflation is really is really a, a threat, mm-hmm. an all around economic, political, social threat, um, uh, and. Uh, and I guess, and, and I guess, and, and the and the and the political leadership at the top seems to be weaker and weaker, and less and less impressive. I mean, I mean, mm-hmm. E.G. Liz Trust, Joe yes. Biden. Need I say more? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and so, so yeah. So, so things are very confused. And yes, there's a great deal of overlap. And the and the center is getting paranoid. Um, and it's you know, and it's it, it wants to you know, it, it's accusing its opponents to either side of all and sundry, but it's not going to work because this 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 NATO policy is plainly falling apart because you know because these these anti-Russian sanctions are backfiring and making things much worse for the U.S. and Europe than they are for Russia. Mm-hmm. So 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 yeah, there's going to be a lot of turmoil. In the coming it, months, there's no is, doubt about it. I mean, I, I'm hard, I think that it is true that people can see that you know they they are suffering. You know, they, their families and communities are suffering, and quote business interests, right? Huge corporate interests are are doing just fine, right? Particularly if you are a weapons manufacturer. And so, you know, on one hand, I think it's it's heartening that there is some focus and some attention on the the dichotomy here, right? And there's some attention being paid to this idea that there's there's no tie that's going to lift all of our boats. And we can see who is consistently benefiting, you know, through all these storms that, you know, we we go up and down through. But, yeah, it's hard, hard to see how any kind of even though you might have a common um, uh, concerns, right, on both sides. And even if you, you know, you can have a sort of isolationist right and an anti-war left that can have some overlapping, uh, you know, overlapping goals. It's hard to see how any any kind of uh, one. It's just hard to see. I don't think this alliance really exists. But even if you were to sort of band together to try and get something done, you know, it's not like an alliance like that can possibly last if you have any sort of ideological coherence. Uh, but it is true, you know. I mean, you have communists and and uh, you know far right parties giving speeches at the same rallies in Prague over the weekend. It was very very interesting. Yeah, that that certainly is was a, was an interesting development. Uh, and you know, but but um, I, I just think things. I just think that things are so complete. I think the seas are so choppy, and things are so confused. 
um, that they aren't breaking along deep left-right lines. Mm-hmm. And and we have this and we have the phenomenon of the of the extreme center. Yeah. Which is which is in some ways, in some in some respects, the nuttiest part of the spectrum of all. Yeah. Um, and 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 that is and and that is what's so you know unsettling as as far as the other two extremes are. I mean, I mean they're 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 confronting the so-called moderates who are behavior behaving in as immoderate a fashion as possible. They did a really good job. They've done a really good job over the last uh, couple of decades of really of, uh, you know, terming themselves the adults in the room. And so I think it's going to take people a while to catch on to the fact that they are uh, going nuts. <laughs> I quite yeah. agree. Instead of the adults in the room, they are the uh, they are the children throwing tantrums. Yeah. And uh, and and the and the, and the rest of the uh, the rest of the spectrum is is kind of like at a loss as to what to do. They're a bit off balance. Just briefly, uh, what do you make of Joe Biden's little uh, series of speeches uh, making defending democracy the center of his rhetoric, calling out MAGA Republicans? Uh, you know, again, he t- trying to uh, present himself and his his center as uh, you know as the guys who are really out there doing some work. They're really getting things done. Uh, he, he's Drop some of his more conciliatory language toward Republicans. Is this what is this doing? Is this going to shore up support for him? Is this is this just a rhetorical tactic? Is it going to work? Well, he's, he obviously hopes it'll, it'll it'll shore up support. I mean, he wants to shore up the Democrats and he wants to attract some of the nervous centrists over to his side. So he's hoping that the the Republicans have gone too far. They've gotten too nutty and extreme. And therefore, they'll turn off the a majority of Americans uh, who, you know, who who want some kind of saner politics. Mm-hmm. Um, but 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 Biden is absolutely correct. There's there's no doubt about it. I mean, the uh, American politics have hopped the wheel. I mean, hopped the, uh, the the rail. One half of the two party system really is moving in an increasingly explicit anti-electoral uh, direction. That's, 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 that's no doubt about that. It's really no joke. I mean, the Republicans are dominated by Trump, and Trump is declaring war on free elections. I mean, we saw what happened in January 6, 2021. It was a genuine, you know, attempted coup d'etat, no matter how, you know, how poorly organized or whatever, it still was the real thing. And, uh, and it's quite clear that Democrat, that Republicans, through various means, are setting up a kind of a similar operation uh, in 2022 and 2024. So, so, you know, so, so Biden was absolutely correct to sound the, sound the alarm. Um, but the trouble is, you know, his speech was so, I mean, it was so mind-bogglingly stupid. I mean, all that, all the, all the, the silly rhetoric about the, about it, about the, the beacon of the, of the free world, the Mm -hmm. greatest country on earth. I mean, I I mean, this kind of stuff is, it's worse than, it's worse than cliched. I mean, it really is a kind of a, a, a mind poison that, that interferes with any attempt to, uh, to get to the bottom of what's going on. And, and the problem is, I mean, Joe Biden equates the rule of law with the with with uh, the will of the people. But American, the American Constitution, the basis of U.S. law, is is itself moving in an increasingly undemocratic direction. 
And that's not because the Republicans are violating it. It's because the Republicans are carrying out certain aspects of the document that the Democrats try to prevent, try to, to pretend don't exist. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Constitution is not a democratic instrument. It's a counter-democratic instrument. Its basic principle is that, is that entrenched minorities should have special powers to reign in the majority because it doesn't want democracy getting out of hand. <laughs> that, that, is, that is the Madisonian vision. I mean, he makes this quite clear. He lays it out in fine detail in Federalist Number 10. And, you know, and, the, um, and so what the Republicans have done, they've, they've used various aspects of the Constitution to impose a minority dictatorship. I mean, I've I've calculated that the that the Republicans have a 12 percent advantage in the House um, due to gerrymandering. They they have 50 50 parity in the Senate, even though they represent 12 percent fewer Americans. Mm. They have a growing advantage in the Electoral College. And now they control the Supreme Court. By the way, five of who five of whose six conservative members were appointed by unelected presidents, i.e., W. and uh, and and Trump. <laughs> so, so it's it's a minority dictatorship, but it's not unconstitutional because it flows quite logically from the the Madisonian framework created in 1787, and that's what the the Democrats refuse to recognize, you know, there's like the three monkeys. They, they cover their eyes, the ears, and their, and their mouths. They, they pretend that the, that, the, that the Constitution is democratic when anybody who sits down and reads the damn thing knows it's the opposite. You know, it's like, it's like people who refer to the Bible as the good book. I mean, I, I've, I've read the Bible. I actually really enjoyed it. I really recommend it. It's a, it's a great book rocking tale. But, you know, but good, it isn't. I mean, mm-hmm. it's filled with massacres and betrayals and stabbing in the back and this and that and this and that. So it's a great tale. I mean, especially the, the first five books, but it's, it's, it's not good. So yeah. anyone who refers to it as the good book is, is fooling himself and fooling others as well. When Donald Trump refers to the to the rule of law as democratic, he is doing the same thing. And by unelected, you mean they lost the popular vote, but but got yes. the, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, W and Trump lost by, by a half million votes on one hand and 2.8 million on the other hand, mm-hmm. and they have appointed yeah. uh, uh, five of the six conservative members who were then confirmed by an equally and equally outrageously undemocratic Senate. Then, you know, which, well, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. I want to, I want to <laughs> shift. Which, which, yeah, which, which just goes to show how, how profoundly undemocratic this system is. Mm-hmm. So Biden, Biden is, uh, is, is, is spinning a fairy tale. I want to ask, one more sort of local uh, question, but it, it goes to the the way we have been talking about crime and uh, and and handling crime. 
Prince George's County, which borders uh, Northeast Washington, D.C., uh, is stepping up enforcement of its juvenile curfew after what the county executive called an eye-popping number of juvenile arrests this year. 430, nearly double the number from last year. PG County in August had its deadliest month in decades, according to WTOP. Uh, there's been a rise in violent crime by repeat offenders. And so it's going to enforce this curfew that it's had on the books for decades. Uh, people under 18 have to be uh, have to be off the streets between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. on weekdays, between midnight and 5 a.m. on weekends. And, you know, as usual, the crime statistics are not entirely straightforward. There's been a big increase in carjackings this year. More than half of those arrested for carjackings Jackings are juveniles, which is terrible. Um, murders are down 15 percent. Uh, but county officials are asking, you know, where are the parents? Where are the aunties and uncles? They're saying parents could be fined for the actions of their kids. Kids could be sent to social services. Um, I have friends who work with juvenile offenders. None of them support curfews as crime deterrents. Um, but it really seems like it seems like all of the sort of defund the police calls from from 2020 have simply resulted in giving the right a great talking point, right? Because you didn't have anyone on the left who was willing or able to take up the actual process uh, of trying to reallocate funding uh, for different social programs and, and pull back the police. And so now, you know, you have these communities that are trying the same old tactics to manage crime. I don't think that this is going to work any other, any better than any other time that curfews have, have been imposed. We have a bunch of studies in this different DC article about it showing that curfews are not effective in, uh, in reducing crime. And yet, I don't know, it's, it's depressing to watch, right? We, we have, we're in the midst of this, um, sort of crisis about crime, right? We're a lot of writing about crime, people really worried about crime, real upticks in some cases about crime. And uh, for all of this discussion we had a couple of years ago about a new way, you know, new ways of of approaching it, uh, it just seems like what we've given is the right uh, cudgel to beat the left with. Yeah. By the way, for your, for your non-DC listeners, uh, PG County is Prince George County. Right. right. <laughs> I don't even write, anyway. yeah. I had to keep writing it out because I, yeah. Anyway, the, the, the story is the same up here in New York. I mean, uh, I mean, gun violence is up. Serious, serious crimes are up actually quite strongly. Murders are slightly down, which is, of course, good. Yeah. Um, but people, people are freaking out. Uh, and no, and I, I don't understand it. I mean, I mean, the things, you know, things have gotten a lot worse. The, some of the, the streets are really in bad shape. The subways are filled with, with, uh, with scary characters and people, you know, and people don't like it. They get upset and, mm -hmm. and they have a right to get upset. And people should be able to ride, ride the subway to work without feeling menaced or uncomfortable. Uh, you know, this is, this to me is, this is entirely, it's entirely legitimate. Mm -hmm. I mean, I agree. I agree that 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 things like curfews will not work, and I and I think that even though crime is sometimes really hard to 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 get to the bottom of to sort of figure out why it's why it's going on, I think it's it's a fair judgment to say that economic stress in general leads to upticks in criminal violence. That mm -hmm. seems be pretty clear, although it can get really complicated. The general trend seems clear. Um, and, and, and to me, it's an example of just you know, how, how Black Lives Matter has backfired. I mean, some of us on the left tried to 
criticized, you know, BLM to point out that 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 many of its demands, strategies, et cetera, were counterproductive. We were completely ignored. In fact, we were shouted down and accused of being racist, et cetera. But we feel we have a reason to feel vindicated. Mm. The, the 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 defund the the police slogan has backfired roundly, and it's backfired in the poorest and uh, uh, minority areas too, mm. where where people don't understand it. I mean, all they can see is that there's that their there's that their lives are more dangerous now than they were a few years ago, and and whatever the Whatever the shortcomings of the police, and they certainly are, they certainly are quite real. They still want cops because otherwise they feel unsafe. So you know, so uh, so so BLM showed itself to be monumentally, you know, unrealistic, politically inept, etc. And now we're seeing the consequences. Um, so I think it's you know I think that 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 yeah. Things are heading out in the wrong direction, uh, but it was all also predictable, and that the economy is basically at the root of it all. It is really a shame because that was sort of you know that was the idea uh, that that people in the streets who were calling for the police to be defunded had that you know you, the economy is the root of this. If you have more uh, social support, if you have more public health support, if people have better jobs and more more income, this will all be changed. But all, you know, all the media really ever took and ran with was uh, defund the police. You know, uh, cops are bad. And now we're all pretending that we tried it and it didn't work. And it's such a shame because the, you know, the ideas that were being presented were not, you know, would have at least represented a different tack than the one that uh, that we've tried over and over that isn't working. Uh, and yet now we just sort of collectively are going to pretend that that anything changed and it didn't work. And uh, now, you know, you have a Democratic uh, president who's investing and, you know, who wants to put tens of thousands more police on the street. Yes. I mean, it's a it's it's a, it's a very strange turn of events and, yeah. uh, and, and and probably wound up hurting the Democrats most of all. But um, but, you know, now that, you know, it's just, it just it's, a, it's a shame because the energy was so wasted. And and it didn't it didn't lead, make things better in some ways that actually less left them worse off. That was Dan Lazar. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Dan's a writer and a journalist. Uh, you want to tell our listeners where they can go to find more of your work? Well, I have a blog at daniellazar.com. I write a lot for a, a British publication called The Weekly Worker. Uh, I've got several books on uh, on Amazon, which uh, listeners are are welcome to check out. And uh, that's it. All right. Thank you so much, Dan. We'll talk to you again very soon. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll talk to you in a minute. is Michelle Witte. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, I wanted to talk about the results of the vote in Chile on its new proposed constitution. 
The vote was on Sunday, but of course it was a really long process to to get to that uh, to get to this vote. Right, the it began with the election of Gabriel Boric, uh, the 36 year old president of the country who came to power, uh, you know, born by a wave of protests. Against rising costs in the country and a general desire to to walk away from the Pinochet era uh, model of government government and and uh, framework for government, uh, it, they put together a a committee. They put together a draft document, but on Sunday, Chilean voters uh, rejected that proposed new constitution pretty resoundingly. Uh, yesterday, with almost all of the ballots counted, 62 percent of voters had rejected the proposal, with only 38 percent voting in favor. This is according to the Chile Electoral Service. I'm not sure if those numbers have shifted a little bit in the course of a day. Um, I want to talk about the substance of the draft and what people didn't like first, and then maybe get into how it was presented and how it was opposed. Uh, and so joining us for this conversation is Dennis Rogatuk. He is the international director of El Ciudad Año. That's a media platform. He lives in Latin America. Dennis, thanks for joining us. No, it's always a pleasure. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of disappointment uh, at what happened to this draft constitution. What do we know about, in, in terms of its substance, what do we know about what voters did or didn't like in the new draft? Well, I have to, I have to say that the overall, uh, let's say, my political mindset of the of the rechazo or the reject 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 option is uh, far more heterogeneous than 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 would appear. So uh, this uh, this sixty uh, percent of the voters that, uh, that eventually rejected uh, this new text, this text of the new constitution. Now, this doesn't imply that sixty percent of the population are conservative or or, or right wing or fascist or any of that uh, sort of sense. Although there's definitely there's definitely a, a neo Pinochetist and a fascist element present among, among those those voters. I believe that uh, we really have to uh, look through this through several factors. Not through several lenses and through several um, uh, say, uh, factors. Number one is that overall, uh, is that overall, uh, the people of Chile do want a new constitution. This was confirmed by almost eighty percent of the population back in the twenty twenty um, election, and this was uh, and uh, even fo following the uh, the victory of the reject option. This this still remains uh, a desire of of a great majority of Chileans, even the ones that voted to reject uh, this uh, you know, this the, this this version uh, of the text of the of the new constitution. So I think it's it's very important to make the, make it very clear that the constitution uh, process continues. It hasn't it hasn't changed. Uh, that, so that, so uh, it, so by law, by law, it is still required that Chile adopt a new uh, constitution. Secondly, uh, there were several. Uh, I say in terms of like in terms of what uh, different people liked or, or didn't like about about the constitution. Uh, now, the uh, throughout very with various uh, kind of studies that were done by El Sudano and by uh, some of our partners. We actually discovered that you know, majority of the population did, uh, agreed with uh, some of the key articles in the mm -hmm. constitution. So they agreed uh, with Chile being a, being a plurinational state. They agreed with the uh, you know uh, uh, water being uh, uh, being made a public right. They agreed um, you know with the, with the necessity to recognize and and put into the constitution the social social and uh, la and labor rights. Um, you know, a public healthcare system, a public uh, pension system, 
But the problem that but the problem was is that uh, these article as I say this sort of uh, this kind of uh, approval for these articles was segmented, and what I mean is uh, you'd find people who uh, who was who are supporting you know concept of the plurinational state, but then they rejected the uh, uh, kind of the new the new rights of sexualities or sexual minorities that were supposed to be implemented in the constitution or you'd find people that identified much more with the with the you know the recognition of the social rights but then i know rejected for one reason or another rejected uh you know the role of the state in uh, uh, once again in the pension system or in the in the economic spheres of life and this sort of uncertainty actually actually you know existed uh, in in the months prior to the to the voting, so during uh, this month of the campaign, even before that, and in and this is where the third fact factor comes in. That is the power of the media conglomerates of mm-hmm. Chile and of their, uh, you know, right wing and, and of their right wing leaders who were actually able to exploit these these uncertainties to create you know these campaigns of these campaigns of uh, lies and fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, against, uh, I say, in doing it uh, rather, rather in, in a very intelligent way. So they were not, uh, they were not attacking the concept of a new constitution. What they were doing is that they were attacking very specific and very, I say, sens- uh, sensitive articles which were part of this uh, new text. So basically, uh, you, you, unfortunately, unfortunately, it did end up uh, working, in, mm-hmm. particularly in cases where you'd find people who agreed with most of the articles in the constitution, but they were kind of a a few, a few of the ones that stood out, which eventually, which fought, which actually made them to uh, choose the re- reject option instead. There was a lot of also external opposition. Uh, you know, you had the Economist uh, calling the new constitution a, a woke disaster. The Washington Post generated a lot of conversation online when it provided an editorial opposing the new constitution that started with a paragraph about the importance of lithium and uh, how bad it would be if we had to be more careful about getting it out of the ground in Chile, basically. And so I wonder, you know, what, how much impact do you think external opposition? position had in the result. But the understanding that, you know, as you're talking about, like a constitution feels like a very significant document. And so it would be tough if you like, you know, if you like eight sections of it, but you don't like two, you know, it's it's Mm -hmm. presumably going to be going to be governing your your entire country. You'd want it to be perfect. And yet that seems impossible. So that's two very different questions. But really, the external opposition, uh, how much of a factor do you think that was? Well, to be honest, I think the external opposition was acted as a bit of a barometer for the internal opposition, mm. uh, because the uh, the articles that you mentioned, say in the Washington Post and uh, and the others, I'd, I'd say they they actually I wouldn't say they really influenced the public opinion inside Chile, because uh, say Chileans the Chilean mindset is much more electric quite insulated, I would, I would say, from the um, the influences and the uh, Opinions of the of the media outside of the country, especially one that's you know that's an English uh, language. But I do believe that uh, that you know these big editorials they actually gave away the uh, you know the interest and the feelings of the of the economic of the economic elite of Chile. That yes, they were quite they were quite preoccupied and uh, uh, were quite worried about the concept of you know lithium being industrialized, uh, lithium resources being nationalized, and later industrialized as part of this as part of the lithium triangle, which would include Chile, uh, Mexico, and Bolivia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, uh, yeah, the, that and also the the article of you know the woke disaster uh, by uh, by the economist again. This is a uh, this was this was an attempt to basically. 
basically, basically to, to try to, to try to try to apply you know this uh, false dichotomy of you know identity politics versus class politics to the you know to the case of uh, to the atmosphere of Chile. So this you know, the Economist article I think isn't even worth looking because <laughs> yeah. it tries to it tries to see Chile through the lens of what is happening uh, in the in the United States and you know the, the political situations and, and history across these two countries couldn't be more uh, uh, different. Not to mention, not to mention that you know, the Economist article completely, I say, ignores you know the the, the wide the, the huge amount of deficiencies which exist in the constitution, the, the current constitution of Chile, which was, uh, of course, implemented in 1980 during the um, dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet, mm -hmm. and where you know a whole sort of uh, uh, a massive group, a whole you know, group of you know experts from from the uh, from the, G the Chicago Boys and uh, uh, the other, uh, you know, conservative uh, conservative elements were key in, in drafting it. Mm -hmm. So the uh, when it's when it when the economist calls it a walk disaster, what it actually means is that you know this is a, a huge step away from the constitution which was forced upon uh, you know Chileans uh, you know through through a military junta. Right. And so you've said Chile, by law, has to come up with a new constitution. So what what happens next? There are several. Uh, the, it is not a hundred percent clear, mm. as there are several possible scenarios in this case. One scenario is that uh, the, a new a new constituent assembly uh, will be called, uh, and once again, uh, and also a new uh, new constituents, uh, uh, new members, new new members will have to be elected. Mm -hmm. Uh, so basically, so basically, the, the process is repeated 100 percent the same uh, the same as before. Mm -hmm. Although, I, although I believe that that may not be uh, uh, very likely, as as you know, this sort of option would also uh, need need to get the approval of the of the Chilean Congress, uh, where uh, the current government coalition does have a majority, but like a, but a very slight majority. Uh, second option would be uh, for the um, uh, basically basically for the decision. Uh, you know, for the for the new for the new constitution for the uh, to basically pass through Congress mm -hmm. and and the, and the final uh, uh, option, although it's um, once once again it's it, it's I'm not sure if, if it would be likely. It's basically basically to to send send the text to uh, basically converge a group of ex uh, a huge group of group of experts in order, in order to draft a new version. So so basically do it in a similar way that was mm -hmm. done. In the in the 1980s, but again, this option would be rejected outright by the country's social movements and student movements. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how this uh, is picked back up. The other question that's being raised is, you know, what what is the relationship between this the rejection of this new constitution and the administration of President Gabriel Boric? And I, I wonder how what you think it means for his administration and whether you think this was, you know, is this a referendum on on him and his administration or no? I would say in in part, yes, I would say the leadership and the governance of uh, Gabriel Boric definitely was definitely played a factor in this. And uh, the and really we have to uh, we have to understand that, you know, in the last six months, the approval approval of Boric, of, of Boric's government has been, I would say, between 30 and 40 percent, mm -hmm. which I would say it's not it's not terrible, but this is not uh, say the kind of numbers you what you'd want to have for you know a brand new left left wing government that has embarked on the pro on the project of implementing the new constitution. Yeah, uh, and this uh, and and of, and of course the media has played a huge part in this as well. But um, there has been a sense that uh, the government of Boric has been indecisive on several 
issues, including the constituent process, um, including some of the you know implementing its uh, implementing its, its social agenda, its social its social programs, uh, reforming the pension system, uh, reforming the um, uh, the the police forces, mm-hmm. and of course ending the conflicts with the with the Mapuche. Uh, organizations. So uh, I guess so. In some way, I think we have to. We also have to. Uh, we have to. We we could we could conclude that a part of the reject option was definitely also, you know, the rejection of uh, his government. But but I'll say the rejection of his government from both the right and the left is, uh, you know, there has been you know, say discontent among the um, also among some of the left wing organizations and indigenous organizations about you know the slow pace. Mm-hmm. Uh, of the uh, of the reform. So yes, this definitely played a part mm-hmm. in the referendum. That was Dennis Rogatuk. He's international director of El Ciudadano. He is living in Latin America. Dennis, uh, where can listeners go to find more of your work and, and work at El Ciudadano? Uh, you can, you can uh, search me on, on Twitter at uh, hashtag uh, Dennis, uh, uh, Dennis Rogatuk. You can also uh, search for El Ciudadano, which is uh, hashtag L underscore Ciudadano. Mm-hmm. Uh, as well, you can find us on on Facebook, on Twitter, and in uh, Instagram, and you can also find my published works on uh, NL Silano, Jacobin, uh, Grace, uh, Grayson, uh, Tribune Magazine, and other publications. All right, Dennis, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. We're going to take a very quick break here on Political Misfits and come back and talk about uh, some of the ecological disasters plaguing us in the last week. You're listening to Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. We bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte, and we wanted to slide in a, a little bit of conversation about how we should see the crisis unfolding in Pakistan and also the one unfolding in California. Uh, in Pakistan, we had a prolonged spring heat wave followed by monsoon rains that were much heavier than usual. That combines to create catastrophic flooding throughout the country. The flooding has been exacerbated by glacial melt, accelerated by the spring heat, and this multifaceted disaster has killed nearly 1,300 people. That was the figure as of this weekend. Uh, It is probably more. It's destroyed more than a million homes. It's displaced, I think, 30 million people. And, um, you know, analysts are saying this is related to our overall warming planet. Pakistan is just the most recent example of the most extreme consequences of climate change being visited upon the country's least responsible for climate change. Uh, And so I'm interested in this analysis that finds that climate change disasters are being disproportionately experienced by the colonized and exploited part of the world and not yet by the parts of the world that are the biggest greenhouse gas emitters. So, So this catastrophe is sort of unfolding along colonial lines. Joining me to to talk about this and how we should view it is Tina Landis. She's an environmental and social activist, and she's the author of the book Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism. Tina, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, you know, I, I think it is a little bit less clear cut um, than it might seem at first glance. But I want to ask, do you see these sort of climate disasters following the geography of colonialism? 
Yeah, partially, because the equatorial regions, the warmer regions that that have monsoon seasons, Mm. are more vulnerable to these extreme weather anomalies. So, you know, these countries rely on, and this is true for California, too, where I live, right? Mm southwestern part of the U.S., is we rely on getting all our rain within a few months. Um, and when so that when that cycle is disrupted and you get either all the rain, like all at once, mm-hmm. heavy rains within a few days, or you get, you know, not enough rain and extreme droughts and heat waves. So, you know, you, these areas are more vulnerable to the climate impacts that are already happening around the globe. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, of course, you have the legacy of colonialism, you know, South Asia and, and Western Africa are the hardest hit by, by the monsoon disruption, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and these are formerly colonized uh, countries that are, you know, have weaker infrastructure, have weaker social safety nets, just don't have the capacity to, like, recover from these disasters when they're happening, um, much less, you know, move towards, you know, green renewable energy and, and um, you know, just shoring up their infrastructure and adapting to climate change. Mm-hmm. It's, it's sort of a combination of just, the geography of where these countries are located, as well as the legacy of colonialism. But it does match, right? Yeah, it does. I mean, you know, I do think part of it is the the legacy of colonialism means the experience of some of these disasters is so much worse. Because, of course, you know, California is setting temperature records right now. It's in the middle of its own heat wave. Uh, Europe has faced both heat waves and droughts just this summer, uh, with rivers shrinking dramatically. We saw whole communities in Kentucky washed away by floods uh, just about a month ago. And so it, it is a combination of, as you say, it seems like some of this is geography, but also it's it's not as though wealthy countries are not um, experiencing the results of climate change, but uh, wealthy countries tend to have an infrastructure that's a little bit more robust and can handle it. And so, you know, yeah, it, it is this legacy of colonialism that leaves these countries uh, more vulnerable. Yes. And Pakistan in particular, just so folks know, have, you know, are responsible for less than 1% of global greenhouse gas emissions, but mm-hmm. huge climate impacts. And another reason they're having all this flooding in, in Pakistan is not just the rainfall, but they have the largest amount of glaciers in their country outside of the pol- polar regions. So they had these huge, long, prolonged heat waves, extreme temperatures in April and May, which resulted in lots of melting of those glaciers. So on top of the heavy rainfalls, they also had this glacier melting. Mm-hmm. So it's just, yeah, once again, back to geography and once again, back to just not having the resources at hand um, because of the legacy of colonialism and neo-imperialism, colonialism as well, right? The the question of what to do with resources is an interesting one because it is a, again, you can give these countries money all you want, but they're not the ones that are causing the problem. And so it makes this question uh, that was raised by Pakistan's minister for climate change, Sherry Raymond, this question of reparations, complicated, I feel like. She she spoke to The Guardian a few days ago and said, there's so much loss and damage with so little reparations to countries that contributed so little to the world's carbon footprint that obviously the bargain made between the global north and global south is not working. We need to be pressing very hard for a reset of targets because of climate change is accelerating so much faster than predicted on the ground. That's very clear. And so on one hand, you know, I I wouldn't dismiss out of hand uh, calls for reparations by countries that are experiencing some of these uh, disasters first. But again, it doesn't really matter if you still have the countries that created the problem continuing the problem. And so I wonder, you know, if we are thinking about a new north-south bargain, 
Uh, what form should that take? And how should these resources be allocated? Yeah. So back as far as the 2009 Copenhagen UN Climate Summit, there is, you know, discussion and an agreement that the Global North countries, the wealthier countries, would pay essentially pay reparations to the the countries most impacted by climate change, mm-hmm. um, those that they've exploited, right, for centuries. Um, they have yet to pay up. Mm-hmm. Every year it's pushed, and and the U.S. really is fighting it. There was there was you know proposals to have a, a formal loss and damage fund set up for this these finances to be transferred, but the U.S. is totally against it and is fighting it every time. Um, you know, because they don't want the liability, right? They, yeah. They're responsible. But they don't want they don't want that formalized. Um, but there is so much that could be done. And really, you know, the wealthier nations do have that responsibility, not only to reduce their own emissions and, um, you know, restore ecosystems in their own countries, but also to pay reparations so that countries of the global south can, can do the same. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's this development gap that is very, very real because of colonialism, where countries just don't have the capacity in the global south to make the changes that are needed. Like, for instance, flooding, these flooding issues could be alleviated and drought as well by creating, you know, like China's creating 30 sponge cities, what they're calling them, which has porous pavements, has incorporates wetlands into the cities, into urban areas, mm-hmm. um, just places for the rainfall to, to be captured, which reduces flooding risk as well as then have that water reserve for when droughts happen. Mm-hmm. So things like that can happen, but you need the funding, right? I mean, most Global South countries are putting all their efforts into recovery after disasters happen and just don't have the capacity to do the preventative work, right? Mm-hmm. There is so much that could be done to, to mitigate the effects of climate change and to, and to adapt and and um, just to reduce, yeah, our impact. You need the funding and you need the ability to look, uh, you know, to a future that extends beyond, you know, what you're going to deliver quarterly for your share- shareholders, you know. Um, the other question I wanted to ask you about, Tina, is, is, is I know you're a Californian. This uh, grid emergency that the state declared yesterday, what, what are people preparing for? And, and what should it tell us that California is saying, you know, blackouts might be coming because the grid can't handle the demand. Yeah, I mean, this really happens every year and every major heat wave um, throughout the West, really. Um, and it's really, you know, a problem that our infrastructure, our utilities are not climate resilient, right? There needs to be money put into shoring up our energy systems so that these blackouts aren't occurring. Um, but I also want to point out, you know, so, you know, wealthier people, affluent, more affluent people have already prepared because this has been happening for years, and they have backup generators, they have backup energy storage. But what about the low-income people, low-income people who don't even have air conditioning, and or, or if they do, they don't, you know, when the power goes out, they have nothing. I mean, it's very dangerous conditions. Mm-hmm. So heat-related deaths are going up every year around the world. Um, and, what, and what about homeless people, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, no one talks about the, the most vulnerable in our society in the U.S. who, who have no protections or very, very little protections against these extreme heat waves. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a problem and and it keeps getting worse every year. It's not, uh, not a big surprise to us here. Um, there needs to be way more done. Yeah. I mean, I'm just looking up, uh, what some of these, I mean, 115 degrees, right. Sitting outside all day in 115 degrees, like that's a, that is a very dangerous situation. Yeah. I mean, hundreds of people die each year in like just one County in Arizona and who are homeless (sighs) people. Right. And those numbers are so underreported in yeah. the U.S., really not accounted to, to heat-related deaths. And so, again, it's sort of like uh, we, we have this sort of dichotomy in the in the globe where the experiences, 
you know, the, the uh, experience of climate change, at least as it's beginning, is is so much worse for countries that are poor. And of course, even at a micro level, uh, as you as you detail, the experience is really different if you you know if you just have money in your household than if you don't. Uh, and you know the the people are going to experience a, a, the disasters uh, in the United States. Even even in wealthy countries, are going to be the poorest among us. I mean, look at look at these communities in Kentucky's where it was mostly trailer homes that were washed away. Uh, this is a much longer conversation. We don't have time for any more of it. But that was Tina Landis. She is the author of the book Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism. Uh, Tina, where can people go and find your book? Yeah, so folks can go to liberationnews.org. They can get my book there. I'm also on a in the midst of a national speaking tour, um, I'm going to be having some California dates coming up as well as um, some dates in the southeast of the U.S. Um, so folks can find that information there. Fantastic, well. Tina. Thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. And that's all the time we have for today on Political Misfits. I, I want to say, of course, thanks to all of our guests. Thanks to the producers and engineers here. And on behalf of myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs>